Good morning. Um, for those of you who are visiting with us, my name is Jonathan, and I serve with the pastoral team here. And um, before we jump in, um, you're going to hear a lot about this over the next couple of weeks, but on the 15th of September, I just want to remind everyone, and Eric is going to share with us later too, another announcement, but I want it just so ingrained in our brains that on the 15th of September, right, that's the 15th, am I thinking the right date? Great. We are going to be heading over to... Redeemer Point Pleasant to have a joint service with them to celebrate their one-year anniversary um, as a church plant. So keep your eyes on emails because we're going to be sending out. I sent one out. I don't know if you noticed. I sent an email out this week. It was super exciting to communicate with everyone with just one click of the mouse. So make sure that you keep an eye out. We're all going to go. We're going to celebrate. We're going to eat afterwards. It's going to be wonderful. And then when we get back, we will be transitioning our students up to the next grade um, for Redeemer Kids. And we'll be hearing more about that as we move forward as well. But can I pray for so those? That's right there. And it's a wonderful slide um, that Jess Smith made. And so just be aware of that on the 22nd. Can I pray for a minute before we jump in? Because my brain's all scattered. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for how you love your people, and thank you for your word. And I pray this morning as we look into your word, as we jump into the Psalms once again, that you would just speak to our hearts, convict us of sin, draw us near to you. Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. We thank you for the cross, the resurrection, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we are looking at 15 Psalms, but we're going to be doing like a hovering over of 15 Psalms, so I won't keep you for that many hours. But we are going to be looking at a group of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. But before we jump in, as I was studying this week and thinking through this collection of Psalms in the fifth book of the Psalter, I was thinking about this idea of ascending a mountain. And... I started, because I'm trying to figure out, like, how does this make sense? How can I fully wrap my mind around this particular set of scriptures? And I thought of this category that many of us have as Christians as a mountaintop experience. We experience these types of experiences when we are anticipating something, and then all of a sudden that something that we were anticipating comes to fruition. For instance, those of us who... Um, have, been, have gotten married in the past and we're, we're anticipating that day, that wedding day and the, the preparation and cake tasting and, and all of those things that you do and then the day where you finally see your soon-to-be spouse, whether you are standing at the altar or you're the one that's coming through the door that first time you see them on your wedding day or that moment when you have your first child where you're anticipating, anticipating for nine months, waiting, waiting, what is this child going to look like, what it's going to be like to be a mother or a father, and then the day comes. Those of you who have been on retreats, and some of our youth just got back from a youth retreat, sometimes you experience this moment when you're on a retreat where you come face to face with God in a very particular way. And, and you make a promise oftentimes that everything's going to be different from now on. For me, I had a very literal mountaintop experience a couple years back where me and my two brother-in-laws climbed Mount Marcy in upstate New York. Um, I was about 30 pounds heavier at the time, and I was lied to um, that about every 20 minutes I was lied to. Like, yeah, yeah, no, we're almost there, we're almost there, we're almost there. Um, and then when we got there, we had to come back down. And, um, and the thing 
about mountaintop experiences is that we always have that thought that everything's different now, right? We've been to the mountain and everything is going to change. For me, when I went to Mount Marcy, I realized I will never climb that mountain again. Everything changed for me. No longer will I be a mountain climber or hiker. But in all seriousness, our wedding day, right? It changes everything. It changes everything. That moment you see your first child born and breathe their first breath, it changes everything. And that's what mountaintop experiences ought to do. It ought to change everything. So this morning, we are going to travel up a mountain, so to speak, as we look at these 15 Psalms of Ascent. And, and like I said, with every mountaintop experience, there is a change that we hope for in our lives. But there's also a descent from the mountain. There's also a descent from the mountain. And that's where that change is lived out. And I guess the question maybe I want some of us to wrestle with this morning is, what changes have resulted in your own lives because of a certain mountaintop experience? And was it a lasting change? And why or why not did my life change as a result of that experience? So keep that in our minds as we begin jumping into our text. I want to just share something with you for a moment. Tim Mackey, who's a Bible scholar from the Bible Project, many of you have maybe experienced the Bible Project. They have these wonderful videos that they put out on different books of the Bible. Um, They have a podcast. It's wonderful. But he says that the book of Psalms poetically retells the entire biblical story, and they invite us into a literary temple, like a, a temple of words, if you will. It's a prayer book for exiles designed as a virtual temple where we enter to meet with God and to hear the entire biblical story of God's kingdom sung back to us in poetry. And if the Psalms are in fact a literary temple where we are brought face to face with God, then a journey through the Psalter is this upward journey toward the mountain of God, a journey that should serve as a distinguishing mark in the lives of God's people, whereby our entire existence changes in light of it. So this morning, as we continue our journey, we dive into the fifth and final book of the Psalter, and it's here, as one writer puts it, where David is miraculously resurrected and brought back into view. See, book four, you didn't see much of David, but all of a sudden we start seeing him again, only this is no longer the David of history, but rather, as we talked about in our first sermon in this series, this is the eschatological David, which is a fancy way of saying the David that is to come. The David that is to come, who will arise and lead his people out of exile and back into the land. So book five presents God's people with hope, hope that one day they will be rescued from their plight, which leads us to where we will be spending the bulk of our time this morning. In book five, like I said earlier, there is a collection of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent, pilgrim songs that ancient Israelites sang on their way back up to Jerusalem or to the temple, to the mountain of God. The Psalms of Ascent are comprised of 15 psalms, 
Psalms 120 through 134. And if you want to flip there in your Bibles, it's on page 297 in the pew Bibles that are underneath the seats. Um, but Psalms 120 through 124, 134. And, and they outline this pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. Possibly some scholars argue that maybe this is the 15 steps leading up to the Temple Mount. And possibly these were songs sung on their way back from exile. But the return from exile was not the final leg in the race for Israel. In fact, for many who were returning, this homecoming was anything but sweet. The book of Ezra says it like this, following the laying of the foundation for the new temple. It says, And all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was lit, laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Why? Because they remembered the glory of the previous temple. They remembered the glory of the previous Israel of which they were a part. And now they have been out of the land for a certain amount of time. And as they headed back in, no longer did they have, that were they looking at the same glory they once looked at before. And in fact, even though they were allowed to go back into the land, it's very clear that their exile was far from over. Yes, they lived in their land, but they were still under the thumb of foreign powers. They were still under the thumb of people who did not serve Yahweh, which is somewhat of our own experience as we make our way in this world, as we journey and take our own steps toward the mountain of God in this life. So the return from exile did not bear the fruit that was hoped for by God's people. In fact, the reality is that even though the people were back in the land, they were far from being rescued from exile. So as they traveled back, they would sing of the glory of Israel. What they were actually singing of was not yet realized. And one scholar says it like this, this distinctive collection of psalms vividly anticipates the movement of God's people toward the permanently established focal point of their worship in Mount Zion. In other words, the journey of Israel heading back from exile to rebuild their nation is a signpost pointing to our own journey as we travel in the footsteps of Christ to the Mount of Crucifixion where one day we will be raised to new life like he was. So as we look at these 15 Psalms, what I want us to keep in mind, as I said, is our own journeys. As we live our lives, as St. Peter said, as elect exiles, situated as an extension of God's holy mountain here in Ocean County, in Tom's River, wherever you might lay your head to rest at night. So beginning with Psalm 120. And ending with Psalm 134 are the Psalms of Ascent. These 15 Psalms, they're structured together intentionally. They have the same title, Song of Ascent or Song of the Stairs. The use of God's name, Yahweh, which is really interesting, is used 24 times in the first seven Psalms and then 24 times in the second seven Psalms. And this structure presents Psalm 127 as the focal point of this particular collection, which is a psalm of Solomon. And interesting that two psalms prior to this psalm 
are written by David, and two psalms following Psalm 127 was written by David. So the writers of the book of Psalms, those editors who, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put these together so that we would draw our attention onto one particular psalm as we read this collection, and that's Psalm 127. And the interesting part about this collection is that it begins with distress. It begins with lament. Look at Psalm 120. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you? You deceitful tongue, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. In other words, woe to me as I'm in exile. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace, who hate shalom. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. So we start with distress, we start with lament, we start with this cry out to God, which is how many of our journeys as we enter into the faith begin. We're at a loss. What, what else do we need in this life? Everything's kind of coming down and we look up to the hills, as it says in a few Psalms later, from where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord and that's where we need to find ourselves. In that place where we are in desperate need of God's grace. And some of us maybe had had those experiences in the past. Maybe prior to deciding that we wanted to follow Jesus. Or in one of those mountaintop experiences where you recognized your desperate need for God. And where did you find some sort of, some sort of bomb for your soul was when you looked up to Christ. This morning, I don't want to even hide it from you. I'm going to make much of Jesus this morning. Because I believe that as we travel through these collect, this collection of Psalms, that where it's heading is the person and work of Jesus. Moving on, we have Psalm 120, this longing for peace. Psalm 121. There's this eye toward Zion. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? Psalm 122, they're journeying back. There's this emphasis on Jerusalem, the thrones of the house of David. There's an emphasis on peace there. And again, I told you this was going to be a very overview of these particular psalms, so I don't want to nail down anything particular. I don't want to dive in too deep. But Psalm 123, again, an eye toward heaven. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Psalm 124, finally they're realizing if it was not for the Lord, then we would be lost. And, and we've cried that out. If it was not for Christ, if it was not for God, I would just be, I would have nothing. And oftentimes I have these conversations with my wife and she, she'll ask me, she's like, I don't get how people do this without Jesus. I don't get how people do it. And I think that's a question we all need to wrestle with. How do people do this? But they do. And I think often they don't even recognize that they're, they're missing something because they don't have the eyes to see or the ears to hear. But those of us who know, man, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. Psalm 125 again enters in with this idea of peace. 
upon Israel. And then Psalm 126, it says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. There's a reversal happening that hasn't yet occurred. So again, as we read these Psalms, there's an anticipation of what is to come. We're not yet there yet. We are elect exiles living under foreign kings in this world, and we need to wrap our minds around that. But we look with hope, which brings us to Psalm 127, which is where we're going to spend a little bit more time this morning. Like I said before, it's a song of Solomon. It's nestled right in the middle of these 15 psalms, surrounded by David. And it starts like this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So right there... What the psalmist wants us to kind of hone in on, and specifically what the spirit-inspired editors of the Psalter want us to hone in on, is the fact that we are dealing with the house of God in the city of God. The temple in Jerusalem, seated atop Mount Zion. That's where the focus is, 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 is for us this morning. That's where God wants us to be looking at specifically. The house of God, which the only way it could be sustained is if it is built by God himself. If it is built by God himself. And and in a literal way, we see the demise of the temple, the Old Testament temple. Both Solomon's temple and the second temple were not everlasting places of refuge for God and his people. They actually had a time limit on them and they didn't last And he goes on, unless the Lord watches over the city, Jerusalem, the watchmen watch in vain. So the psalmist wants us to focus on the temple, on the dwelling place of God. On the dwelling place of God. And then he goes on in verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And then he says this, behold... Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are children, are the children of one's youth. This is a beautiful picture of what it means to have kids, right? It is. And there is blessing for those of us who have children on most days. But the psalmist is doing something different here. In fact, the psalmist is not necessarily talking about my three kids here. I want them to be because I love them and they're cute and they were sitting with me in the back. But he's not. 
On a surface level, he is, because children are a blessing from the Lord. But more specifically, he's talking about the heritage of David. In fact, the translation where it says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, is not the best translation, because it's actually, behold, sons are a heritage from the Lord. Which gets me thinking, well, what about my daughter Elizabeth? Is she not a heritage? And which reminds us that we're not necessarily dealing with our own kids in this text. That's not what he's getting at. Behold, sons are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children or the sons of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And what the psalmist wants us to wrap our minds around is both the dwelling place of God, the house, and the dynasty of God, which is the Davidic dynasty. The dwelling place of God and the dynasty of God. Flip with me to Psalm 132. Because these two psalms kind of go together. It starts off like this. It says, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships. Let me read that again because I want us to hear that word. Remember, O Lord, in whose favor? David's favor. All the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it in Ephratah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You and the ark of your might, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant who, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one or Messiah. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. This is important. Do we hear what he just said here? The Lord swore to David a sure oath that he would not turn back, one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. So there's a son that will sit on David's throne. And then there are sons who will forever sit on David's throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place, his resting place forever. What the psalmist wants us to keep in mind here as we look at these psalms of ascent, he wants us to remember the covenant he made with David that was talked about in 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you want to look at that later on. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 and following, you'll see that promise, that covenant that he makes with David. And that covenant is that one of his offspring will sit on his throne for all eternity. For all eternity. This is amazing what's happening here. 
Because as we travel through the story of Israel, there was not one who could do it. There was not one who could sit upon that throne and rule it in a way that Deuteronomy 17 called kings to rule as. They couldn't do it. Even Solomon, the great king, the one who had wisdom beyond measure, literally, like step by step, just denies the the statutes and laws set out for him in Deuteronomy 17. It says, don't acquire many horses and chariots. What does Solomon do? He acquires many horses and chariots. Don't marry foreign women. What does Solomon do? He marries foreign women. He just keeps on going step by step. It's like he had Deuteronomy 17 in front of him. He was saying, how can I fully mess this up? And there was not one who can do it. Everyone tried. Lord knows they tried. But they kept on fumbling the ball. It's like watching a football game and seeing your favorite player just can't get it done. It's like I remember back in the 90s, I was a Yankees fan, and and I would watch Derek Jeter, and sometimes Derek Jeter would just do amazing things. And there were times you're like, why isn't he doing the thing? Like, this is the time where he should hit the home run or the double or whatever, and he just doesn't do it because he's not Jesus, which is a weird way to talk about Derek Jeter. Some of you might be into it. I don't know. But the point is, is that David, again, not literal David, but eschatological David, that's your million-dollar word for the day, eschatological David was something different. And this particular David does something from his position of glory from Mount Zion. If you look at me at Psalm 132 again in verse 15 and following, it says this. It says, I will abundantly bless her provisions, Israel's provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. He's telling us about Jesus. And he's telling us about the blessing that happens when you go up, you eventually come down. And that's what's happening in this collection of Psalms. As we read through them and as we think through them, as we ascend the mountain of God, God is not calling us to stay there. In fact, he's calling us to head back down with blessing, which is precisely what Jesus has done. Which is precisely what Jesus has done. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came down. He came down. Keep that in mind as we continue going through this text. The last psalm in this collection, Psalm 134. It says, and it's very short, it says, come bless the Lord, right? It's this, it's this call to praise. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. And then it says this in verse 3. May the Lord bless you From Zion, he who made heaven and earth. It's a call to praise, but if we pay close attention, the final verse of 134 says that the blessings of the Lord come from Zion. From the mountain they come down. 
And this is where if we use our sanctified imaginations, we can see that the promise that the Davidic throne would be inhabited for all eternity is finally coming to fruition from atop of Mount Zion, the heavenly city of Jerusalem, the resting place of God. There is blessing that comes raining down upon the people of God. But it's a blessing of the most unusual sort because not in the same pomp and circumstance as that of King Solomon, not in the glory of his temple nor in the glory of Solomon's palace, but rather in the person and work of a man hailing from Nazareth. As it says in the New Testament, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Of one entering a people still under the rule of foreign powers, just as they were when these psalms were sung on the way back into the land. Guys, this is about Jesus. This is about the story of Jesus, how he enters into our world, and then he ascends again. And from that ascended place, what does he do? He pours out blessing, right? He cries out in distress for deliverance, just like the psalmist does in 120, as Jesus is in the garden that this cup may pass from me. He lifted up his eyes to the heaven and prayed to the Father constantly throughout his ministry, just as Psalm 121 and 123 call us to. And then he ascends multiple mountains, the Mount of Transfiguration, the Mount of Olives. We will be going through the Sermon on the Mount in just a few weeks in the fall. And then Mount Calvary, the Mount of Crucifixion. And it was on Mount Calvary where he was crowned with thorns. He was lifted up and crucified and buried. And three days later, according to the scriptures, he was risen to new life and he is ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sits upon that everlasting throne where he will send another blessing from Zion, the blessing of his Holy Spirit so that we might go and do likewise. That's the gospel. That's the story of Jesus from beginning to end. That's the good news, that he's king. And those of us who trust him will benefit immensely. Forgiveness of sins, sanctification, adoption, glorification. We will too be resurrected to new heights in the last day. This is the good news. The Apostle Paul, an early Christian missionary, tells us in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2 that we have also been seated in the heavenly places, lifted up, made alive together, promised immeasurable riches, right? We're there. He actually speaks in Ephesians chapter 2 as though we're already there, which is confusing because it doesn't always feel like we're already there. But Jesus tells us, Paul tells us, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are presently seated in the heavenly places. And what for? So that we might walk in the good works that he prepared before us. Redeemer. We go up so that we might go back down again. We don't stay up. We don't stay up. Even in the end, right? Even in the end, on the last day, when we all are up, guess what happens? Jerusalem comes back down. It comes back down. That's the story of the Bible. It goes up so that it can come down. We have an earthy Messiah. 
A very tangible Messiah. One who got his feet dirty, his hands dirty, his face dirty. Who walked in the dust of of, of Israel. That's the kind of Messiah we serve. And that's the kind of people he's calling us to be as his church in Ocean County, in Tom's River, along the Jersey Shore. Getting our hands dirty. Because right now we're seated in the heavenly places, but he's saying, no, go back in. Go back in. This is what he's calling us to. This is the beauty of the story of salvation. The story of Jesus is that not only does he do it, but he makes a way so that we might follow suit and do it with him. This gets me excited. This gets me overwhelmed because I keep thinking of like, okay, but how? What are, the, what are the opportunities that we might have to go about and do this? And I'm excited because come September, as Eric gets back, we're going to be launching into the Sermon on the Mount for the fall. And we're going to be talking specifically about what it means to live in light of this kingdom that we are a part of. That there are certain ways of life that actually lead to the flourishing of ourselves and the flourishing of others. And then there are certain ways of life that lead to human decay in this world. And the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount is that it's not what we would expect that would lead to the flourishing of God's people and those who are around us. It's actually completely illogical and irrational the things that lead to our flourishing but I don't want to spoil it because we're going to get there in a few weeks simply put to live our lives in light of the good news is to live our lives tearing down the barriers that keep people from seeing the inbreaking of the kingdom tearing down those barriers remember we are living under a foreign regime right now we are not living under, at least in, in the, the tangible sense right now, under the rule and reign of Jesus. It's in-breaking here and there, and we see it in pockets. We see it on Sunday mornings. We see it as we come to this table. But we are living under foreign powers. And, and the thing that God is calling us to is to not align ourselves with the powers and principalities of this world. And that could mean not aligning ourselves with political parties. That could mean not aligning ourselves with specific news sources, whatever the case may be, left, right, center, who knows, whatever. Because the kingdom is having a different conversation. And the rest of the world is fighting for power. Don't believe that it's for our good. We can't believe that it's for our good. They're fighting for power. And we need to be having a different conversation. One that speaks for the good of our neighbor. One that speaks for our own sacrifice so others might live. It's a different conversation. And as we enter into that conversation, we can be the means, a conduit by which God is manifesting his kingdom in our midst. It's exciting to be a part of it. It's confusing at times. And you will be mocked at times for it. 
And the question I beg is that when I'm not being mocked, am I doing it, right? And I don't want to go into this whole heaping condemnation thing because we can go down that road, and I don't think that's what the gospel does. What I think the gospel is calling us to is to catch a glimpse of the beauty of the story of Jesus and then to jump in with both feet and see how we can be a part of it. And it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story, and it is the true story of the world. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose, he ascended, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the true story of the world. That's the true story of the world. That's what we are called to live in light of. Old Testament Israel had an opportunity to live their lives before an unbelieving world. And the pattern they displayed was one that conformed to the patterns of this world. But we have an opportunity through the power of the Holy Spirit to do something different. What are we doing with our own mountaintop experiences as we go back to that first three minutes of our sermon this morning. What are we doing with our mountaintop experiences? Have they changed our lives? Has being a follower of Jesus impacted the way we live our lives? And I don't mean that we just don't curse as much maybe as we used to, or maybe we stopped cursing completely. I don't mean just like that, and that's great if that's part of it. But it's more than that, right? It's more than just these slight behavioral changes. It's an entire way of life that is postured toward those who are broken and submitted to the lordship of Jesus. That we serve the world as we proclaim the resurrection. As we, as we serve the world as we proclaim the resurrection. It's a whole entire reorienting of ourselves. It's a whole... and. It, and it's, and it's scary because I think there are parts of following Jesus that will, will result in maybe loss of friends, family, whatever the case may be. But again, think about the story. Think about how the word became flesh. And think about how he dwelt among us. And think about how he lived this perfectly faithful life of the ideal Israelite the one that every single Israelite was trying to be. And then think about how he died on a cross as he marched up that mountain. And think about how he cried out to his father and how he lamented something that we've been practicing over this summer. And think about thou, how he breathed his last breath and how he was put in a tomb. And think about how he then rose again and how he ascended and how he seated. I can't not keep saying that story because like I said, that is the true story of the world. And it's got to capture our imaginations. And it's got to capture our hearts because that is the only thing that's going to fuel the mission of God. That's the only thing. Condemnation, trying to do it better is not going to fuel this mission. It's the story of the resurrected king that will force us to do it better because we will have no other choice. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He died, who was buried, he rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's ruling over this world. And he rules through us. So as we approach the table this morning, this is what is taking place as we partake of this ancient meal.
instituted by Jesus himself, we are spiritually ascending the mountain of God and being nourished by God himself in the heavenly places so that we might be sent back down. Just as Jesus was sent back down into the world in which he created, sent down to proclaim the glory of the kingdom, not of this world, sent down to heal sick, to feed the hungry, to suffer on behalf of the broken so that we might get a taste of the kingdom come. We pray that in the Lord's prayer. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So we pray that prayer. And I grew up praying that prayer and I, and I used to just, like, I was able to race through the Our Father. Like, it was like, boom, boom, boom. I was like, wanted to see how fast I can get through it. Right? Because whenever you memorize something as a kid, the goal is to see how fast you can recite it for some reason. But think about that. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, that prayer is a radical prayer because what it's doing is it's saying, we have heaven here and we have earth here and we want to bring them together. And that's how the end of the story goes. And that's how it goes for the church because we are a slice of heaven as we enter into this world. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. And he ascended to the Father and he is seated at his right hand, ruling over. And he's calling us to go out into this world and be his ambassador so that we might testify to the kingdom that is already being built in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the truth of your kingdom. We thank you for the beauty of your kingdom. And we thank you for the wonderful story of the gospel, Lord. And I pray that it sits with us this morning, that it sits with us this week, that it impacts us in a way that it never has before. And I pray that as we come to your table and we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, that we would taste and see that you are so good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. I'm going to call the ushers forward now to distribute the elements.